Please be turning to Isaiah chapter 53. We will read together the entire chapter. Isaiah 53. <clears throat> Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not redeem him, esteem him. Excuse me. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we are like sheep who have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord, he has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made him his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor is any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasures of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labors of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured his life out, his soul out into death, and he was numbered with, his, with the transgressors and bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Well, good morning. It's certainly good to be here with you this morning. Uh, I'd like to ask for a moment before we begin the lesson and so that I could take some time to express my appreciation for you. For those who don't know, we're in the classroom from 8.30 to 4 p.m. five days a week, taking nine classes over an 11-week period with a week break in between each of those classes. It's equivalent to about 27 hours of collegiate work every 11 weeks. And so there's a lot of no sleeping and a lot of unhealthy amounts of coffee and Red Bull and things of, of those nature. It gets difficult. There's been times where I have questioned being at school. Times if I have struggled with being there, if I'm using the church's funds 
in a proper way. Times where I've questioned if I'm going to be able to finish school or if I should, should stop. But then I got a card of about 12 children from the congregation here. Couldn't really read any of their names. But I will tell you that it is the most encouraging card that I've probably ever received in my life. And so I say all of that to say this. Thank you. I would not be able to do school without you. Yes, you are funding me, and I am extremely thankful for that. But the cards, the calls, the text messages, all of those things, I will forever be in your debt for. And so thank you for that. There have been many titles given to Jesus Christ. Some of those titles he deserved. Some of them he did not. Yes, he is the Lamb of God. The light of this world. No, he was not a blasphemer. No, he wasn't a false teacher. No, he did not perform miracles through the power of Beelzebub. Our Savior has been given a lot of titles, but this morning I want us to consider Jesus Christ as the suffering servant. To do that this morning, we're going to look at four New Testament contexts. This is a study that should change my attitude. And because my attitude has changed, my actions are going to change. And as my actions begin to change, I am going to grow a deeper appreciation for Jesus Christ and what He has done for me and what He has done for you. So I'd encourage you this morning to join me first in Luke chapter 4. First context this morning, Luke chapter 4. And we'll begin in verse 17. Jesus Christ has just begun His ministry. He's began in Galilee and he is teaching and people are amazed at the things that he is teaching. He's starting to draw a crowd and now he's decided that he's going to go to his hometown of Nazareth. And as his custom, he goes into the synagogue. Someone hands him a scroll and we'll pick up in verse 17. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery to the sight of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And He closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on Him. And He began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Christ reads from the prophet of Isaiah here, this is a messianic prophet, prophecy. It's a prophecy talking about Jesus Christ. The Jews didn't know Jesus was whom that prophecy is taught, was whom that prophecy was speaking about. But they knew that there was a man coming that was going to fulfill these things. They knew that there was someone coming, not just because of this prophecy, but because of many others in the book of Isaiah and the rest of the Old Testament, that there is a man coming who is going to fulfill the things spoken of. And so he reads this prophecy, but then more than that, he claims that these things are being filled for you today. What does that mean? That means that Jesus is starting to claim that those prophecies are talking about him. He's beginning to claim that he is the Son of God. He is the one that these Jews were waiting for. And keep reading with me and notice their reaction. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? At first they're amazed at the teachings of Christ. But then notice the question. 
Is this not Joseph's son? In another context, Matthew chapter 13 and verses 53 through 58, Christ is going to go back to his hometown and they're going to question him again. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary? Are these not his siblings? The Son of God is standing in front of them, teaching them from the prophet Isaiah. And the question that these Jews ask, is this not Joseph's son? Why did the Jews ask this? Well, you see, the Jews had expectations for this man that was going to fulfill this prophecy. They expected that Jesus Christ was going to come in and he was going to be a great military leader like David was. He was going to get the Jews together and they were going to overthrow the Romans and Israel was going to be great again, just like it was back in the Old Testament. And because of their preconceived expectations, they could not see the Son of God who was right in front of them, teaching them the Word of God. There's a blessing there for us today. If we go into Bible study, if we go into God's Word with preconceived expectations, maybe that's because of our own desires, maybe because it's something that we've heard in the world, but we come into study with those preconceived expectations, we too are going to be blind to the message that God's Word is trying to teach us. When we study God's Word, we have to go in looking for truth, a clear mind, not what I desire, but what the Bible teaches as truth. And if we don't, we will miss Jesus Christ just like these Jews did. Keep reading with me and notice what Christ says to them in verse 23. And He said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Notice Christ here knowing that He's headed to the cross with that first quotation in the first part of this verse. But then in verse 24 He says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came all over the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at that time of Elisha the prophet and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. It's really interesting what Christ does here. He's going to call out the Jews for their lack of faith, for their lack of seeing Jesus Christ there. He's going to compare them to an Old Testament time, a time they would have known well. If you want to reference it, it's 1 Kings 17 and also 2 Kings chapter 5, and the prophets Elijah and Elisha. And if you study Israel during this time, they were not very faithful people. And so Christ is going to remind them that only two people here, he mentions, were saved. Two people were healed during this time, and where he gets them is this. Both of those people who were saved were Gentiles. They were not Jews. In a land where Israel was supposed to be the dominant nation, only two Gentiles were the two that were saved. And because of this, you'll continue to read through that context. They get enraged, and they try to kill Jesus Christ for him teaching to them their shortcomings and also foreshadowing the fact that salvation was also coming to the Gentiles and they are ready to listen. Why was Jesus Christ the suffering servant? He was the suffering servant because he was rejected in his hometown. Consider what John chapter 7 and verse 5 says. Not even his own brothers believed him. Rejected by his own family. 
in a town where he was probably known the best as he began to be raised and to grow up. They rejected him and they rejected his teachings. Why? Because he was just a carpenter's boy. He didn't match the description that these Jews wanted. So what's the application for us today? If we choose to wear the name Christian, if we choose to wear the name of Christ, we too are going to suffer. We may even face rejection by people that we love, people that we're close to, even our own family members. But notice how Christ continued to push through. He knew where he was going. He knew he was headed to the cross, that he would be raised, and ultimately that he was going back to the Father. How do we endure trials and persecution and rejection from those that we love and from this world? We remember that this world is not our home and that we're just a passing through. Consider another context with me. John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Sometimes when we're on road trips or with friends and other things, we like to play a little game. Or we ask a question. If you had one day left on this earth with no limitations of money, physical health, any of those things, what would you do? And you'd get different answers. I would buy this car. I would visit this country. Lots of very physical things. But I want us to notice what Jesus Christ did on His last day before going to the cross. Because his attitude and his actions were so contrary to the world, and sadly sometimes contrary even to our own attitudes in the church. John chapter 13, let's look at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I'm going to stop here for a moment and consider who Jesus Christ is speaking about. In this context, he's observing the Passover with his men, his apostles, his disciples, those who were closest to him. Think about that for a moment. The Bible says that Jesus Christ loved fishermen. Men who were as common as common people could get, rightly from a rough background. They don't say swearing like a sailor for no reason. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ loved them. What about Matthew? Who here likes taxes? I know that I don't. And especially for the Jew, when it was coming for the Romans, they were even more upset. They probably couldn't tolerate Matthew because not only did he collect taxes, he worked for the people that the Jews could not stand, the Romans. And yet, Christ calls him as one of his twelve. In the context here, the Bible says that Jesus loved him and loved him to the end. What about Simon the Zealot? We don't know how much involved Simon was with the Zealots, but the Zealots were known as a group of people who committed terrorist acts. A group of them known as the Knife Men. They would walk around and they would stab people in the Roman provinces, in the Roman areas, in order to cause terrorism in hopes of one day that they would overthrow the Roman Empire. The Bible says that Jesus loved Simon. Keep reading with me now. Verse 2. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments. Taking a towel, he girded himself 
And then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. I want us again to think about the men of whose feet Jesus Christ is washing right now. Ten of those men just hours away are going to scatter from him. The Bible says they're going to fall away. They're not going to be by his side when he's betrayed. What about Peter? A man who know, or Christ knows is going to deny him not once, not twice, but three times. The Bible says that Jesus loved Peter and that Jesus washes Peter's feet. And then there's Judas. The man that would betray our Savior. The Bible says that Christ loved Judas. And the Bible says that Christ girded himself with that towel. He poured water into the basin and he washed Judas's feet. Why did Jesus Christ do this? Why do we have this account in the book of John? 14 is the answer. Verse 14. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. The question is, what excuse do we have? If the perfect man can come down, leaving the throne of God to love the imperfect man, how much more should the imperfect man learn to love our fellow imperfect man? If the Son of God can come down and take the lowest position in the house, the lowest job, the dirtiest, the nastiest, the most disgraceful job in the house, and to wash his disciples' feet, to wash the man who is ultimately going to betray him, what excuse do we have when it comes to loving one another? What excuse do we have when it comes to serving one another? There was no job below Christ's pay grade when it came to serving others. Can the same be said about us? You know, there's a phrase that goes, and I really like it. You'll never look at somebody that Jesus Christ does not love. I think that is an awesome statement, but I want to add to it this morning. You will never look at someone that Jesus Christ did not love, does not love, and you will never look at someone that Jesus Christ would not serve. If we can live by those two things, I think our lives will be blessed for the better. Consider another context with me. Matthew chapter 26. This part of Christ's life takes place right after the account that we just read. Right after the dinner that he has with his apostles, he's now going to go into the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36. We'll begin there. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them, fell on his face, and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He sent away again a second time and prayed, saying, 
My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. First, I want us to notice the beautiful picture that the name Gethsemane paints for us. The name means a place of olive press. In this garden, there would have been olive trees, and there likely would have been a concrete bowl. The best way I can describe it is as a West Texas horse trough. And they would have put olives into this bowl, and there would have been a wheel of some sort with an animal pulling it around. And they would have crushed those olives, which would have produced olive oil. And it's believed that this very location is where they would get the olive oil that they would use to anoint the prophets and the priests and the kings of Israel. What a beautiful picture this is. I consider what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. What are we considered there? A holy priesthood. And you think about that those priests were anointed by oil, but how are we anointed today? How are we installed into the holy priesthood? by the blood of Christ. What was the result of Christ being crushed in the garden? What was the result of His mental anguish and His falling on His face and crying to the Lord? According to Luke chapter 22, He sweated drops of blood. He would ultimately go to the cross and be a sacrifice for our sins. That way His blood may anoint us to that royal priesthood, that holy nation. Consider also that Jesus Christ was a man of prayer. One of the first things that you learn in Bible school is Mark 135, at least at Southwest. And that verse says, Now when it was early in the morning, Jesus got up, went away to a secluded place, and was praying there. Our Savior was a man of prayer. What's interesting in that context is before the day before He got up early, Christ had a long day of work. He spent that whole day healing and teaching and bringing people to Him because He knew that He was the solution to their problems. That was exhausting work. But instead of sleeping in the next morning, He gets up and He prays to the Father. Christ always took time to pray to the Father. It was His habit. And that will be important here in just a second. I was blessed to hear a sermon on this context by our brother Mike Vestal. And he asked a question. And I want to ask it to you again. What would have happened if Peter, James, and John would have actually prayed in the garden. Think about Peter for just a second. What was he just told? He was going to deny Christ three times. What would have happened instead of sleeping if he had chosen to pray for faith, for strength, whenever that trial, that temptation came, that he would remain faithful to the Lord? Think about James and John for a second. The sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, those who wanted power in the kingdom. That was their mindset. What would have happened if they would have prayed and had an attitude like David? Father, just to be in your courts would be enough. And then we think about us today. How many sins would we avoid, not commit, if we chose to pray? In our times of temptation, instead of dwelling 
on things so that lust can conceive and give birth to sin? What if we chose to take those things to God in prayer? What if in life, when times started to seem as if the world was caving in, anxiety, worry, and all of those things began, and instead of giving in to the world, what if we chose to take those things to God in prayer? Consider three points of application this morning from this text. The first is, is that when times get tough, our habits define us. You've probably heard that from a coach before. Maybe a boss or a teacher didn't originate with them. That principle is found in the Bible. Think about Jesus Christ for a moment. His whole life leading up to this moment in the garden, in the cross, he's preparing for it. From very early on in his ministry, back in Mark chapter 1 and verse 35, when times got tough or he had a long day, what was he doing? He was praying. You go out throughout the rest of his ministry, when there were times when he struggled or needed to get away, he always prayed to the Father. And so it should be no shock to us when we come to the garden and we find him falling flat on his face, pouring himself out to God in prayer. He was prepared for that moment. And so the question is for us, what are we doing today to prepare for the struggles of tomorrow? Sadly, it's not a uh, if they happen type of statement anymore. It's a when statement. When are we going to struggle? When are we going to go through temptations and trials in life? It is very hard to prepare for a storm when that storm is already on you. Almost impossible. Consider another point. In one of the darkest hours of Christ's life, when he was likely facing some of the, most, the, the hardest struggles that he's faced in his entire life, he had those whom he loved around him. He brought his apostles to the garden with him, and even more so, three of them who were closer to him a little bit farther in the garden. And yes, Jesus Christ was reliant on God to get through that. But he had those whom he loved on this earth also with him. And if Jesus Christ didn't try to go through difficult times, he didn't try to endure his sufferings alone, what makes us think that I or you can do that alone? Consider one more. When we go through difficult times in life, when we struggle in life, we should not expect God to make those things disappear. If I was under a rainstorm and it was lightning and thundering and I prayed to God, please take this away, he's not going to snap his finger and that cloud's going to go poof. You think about men like David, Daniel, Job, Paul, all of these men who suffered so much in the Bible. Did God ever just make the enemies disappear that were chasing David? No. Did Daniel still have to spend a night in the lion's den? Yes, he did. Did Paul have to go through this life getting stoned and chased out of places and ridiculed by the Jews every single place that he went? Yes, he did. Why? Because there's purpose in our sufferings, and sufferings produce faith, endurance, hope, reliance on God. Those are things that we should not expect God to take away, but rather He gives us the resources to get through them. He's given us an avenue of prayer that we can cast our burdens, that we can go to Him with our struggles. He's given us His Word that assures us that no matter what we suffer in this life, no matter what we go through in this life, nothing can take us away from God unless we choose to leave Him. Consider the next context this morning. 
Let's go to the cross. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Before we hit this context, I think it's also important to note that he has given us the church as well as a support system and a comfort system for us to be able to get through trials. Matthew chapter 26. Rather, sorry, let's go to 27. Starting in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard this began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The cross, Jesus on the cross, is often called the centerpiece of the Bible. The whole Old Testament is pointing towards the cross and the whole New Testament is encouraging us to look back at it. Think about the suffering that Christ has endured up to this point. Rejected. Especially by His own family. One of His own men are going to sell Him away for a bag of silver. Ten of His men who spent his whole ministry with him, you're going to scatter like sheep without a shepherd. One of them is going to verbally deny Christ three times. He gets to the garden, suffering with the fact that he's about to go to the cross, enduring the weight of the sins of the world. I hope you've noticed that none of these things are necessarily physical sufferings. The suffering of Jesus Christ started way before a whip or a hand or a crown of thorns touched his head. But then he gets falsely accused by the Jews. He's given over to the Romans and there the flesh is ripped off his back. He's spit on, ridiculed, mocked. A crown of thorns is placed on his head. And he's given the most humiliating death that someone can die in this age and time. And not only that, he's crucified with two thieves. Two men that they would have equated Christ with. The lowest of lows, those who deserved to be on the cross. Brothers and sisters, this is something that should affect me. In preparation for this study, it made me think about a friend that I had lost a couple years ago. I'm sad that he's gone. It hurts that he is gone. And it has motivated me to try to be a better person in life. To be better for Christ. To do things in a better way. To live in a way that is more purposeful. And I wonder year and year again as that date comes around when things happen. And why it keeps hurting. And it's because I love this man. And I cared for him a lot. And I respected what he did on this earth. And because of that I want to try to be better. And I know that you too probably have somebody that you can put in that category. Someone that you have loved, someone that you are close to, someone that's passed away that really had an impact on your life and because of that you want to live your life better. But the question for us this morning is does Jesus Christ 
have an impact on our lives like that. A man who lived a perfect life for you and me, endured temptations and different sufferings, and ultimately went to the cross on our behalf, who was disrespected and treated poorly in every way possible. Does he have an an impact on my life? Because what he has done for me, am I going to live a better life? Am I going to try to serve and to bring God glory because of what Jesus Christ has done for me? I know that I personally struggle with the perspective of Jesus Christ sometimes. And I want to share a verse with you, Matthew chapter 27. Let's back up to verse 19 for a moment. Something that I like to look at when I struggle with my perspective of Jesus Christ. Maybe it will help you as well. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they all said, Crucify him. And he said, Why, what evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And in the margin of my Bible, I have written, I am Barabbas. Barabbas was known as a notorious prisoner for what he had done. Barabbas was headed to the cross because of his actions. He was going to die. But because Jesus Christ took his place, Barabbas was given a second chance. In a very similar way, I at one point was enslaved to sin. Because of that, not only did I deserve to die physically, but eternally, separated from God. But because Jesus Christ took my place on the cross, because he chose to bore my sins, I now have a second chance, an opportunity to live for him and to serve for him. I started this lesson with a claim that this type of study should change my attitude. And because my attitude has changed, my actions are going to change. Because my actions change, I'm going to grow a deeper appreciation for Jesus Christ and what he has done for me. And here's why. Because every time that I sin, every time I transgress the law, every time that I turn my back on God, is another reason that Jesus Christ had to go to the cross. We get frustrated with the Jews for falsely accusing Christ We get frustrated with the Romans for beating him and tearing the skin off of his back. But every time that I sin, if I choose to live a life that is in sin, I might as well be there with him when they nail the nails into his hands. I'm the one that should be there when they falsely accuse him. I should have just put the crown of thorns on his head because my sins put Jesus Christ there. There have been a lot of titles given to our Savior. Some he deserved, some he did not. But I would argue without a doubt, our Savior deserved the title, the suffering servant. This morning, if you're not a Christian, I hope you've noticed that there is a Savior that has suffered so much for you. Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. You know what that means? That includes me and you. He suffered for you. He's offered a gift to you. And according to Matthew chapter 21 and verse 24 and verse 42, 
I don't know when the Savior is coming back. And then I read a passage like Revelation chapter 20 and verse 15 that tells me that if my name is not written into the book of life, that I'm going to be cast into the lake of fire and be separated from God eternally. This morning, you have to make a choice. Don't chance your soul. You've got a Savior who's loved you and who's offered a gift to you who has suffered so much on your behalf. Don't make His sacrifice one that is, in, that is in vain in your life. Choose to read His Word. To believe that He is the Son of God. To be willing to confess His name. To repent of your sins. And to live a life that is faithful to Him after choosing to be baptized for the remission of your sins. His blood washing away the sins of your life. That way you may stand righteous before God. Maybe you are a Christian this morning and you've struggled. Maybe you've struggled with a poor perspective of who Jesus Christ is and that's dictated your actions and your attitude in a poor way. Maybe you're carrying a burden of sin this morning. Don't carry that burden anymore. Christ said to cast those things onto Him. The church is here and wants to pray for you. The little kids on Sunday night sit over here and there's a question asked, what is the definition of true success? Living your life and going to heaven. Why? Because that's where God is. We all have that same goal, and we all want to go there together, and if we can help you in any way to get on that straight and narrow path, you can come forward now as we stand and as we sing together.